Hey, grab a Bible and open it to Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Uh, in, in a few minutes, we'll put the words up on the screen as we go through verse by verse. But for now, as we start, would you just listen or follow along? It's going to be a slightly different translation. And let the words of Jesus just pour over your soul. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples... Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations run of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's word. So we are, if you are new with us, welcome. We're very glad that you are here. We are working our way through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse. And we're in this kind of literary unit that deals with some of Jesus's warnings. He's warning us about the things that will derail us in our relationship with God, that will corrode a life of faith. And and he began this warning section by telling us to be on guard against hypocrisy, which is to live one life in front of people, but to cultivate a different life uh, in private. And so uh, last week we see Jesus Now move from hypocrisy on to warning us about greed. And he has a conversation with a very well-to-do individual who is concerned with his things and acquiring more. And so Jesus warns us about greed and its power to derail a life of faith. But now we see his disciples... Uh, are his audience, that he's speaking with his followers and, and, and a crowd around him that primarily lives day to day. The way that his disciples functioned financially and those people around him, closest to him, and the crowds that would have gathered to him would have lived each day on what they made that day. So these are not people with 401ks, these are not people with beach houses, these are people who are living for the next moment. There is no Costco. There is get in your boat co and go fishing co. So that's, that's what he's dealing with. And so he's speaking to these people and he's focusing on a group of people without a lot of means. And he warns against greed on one hand because it places inordinate value on material possessions. And yet... As he moves on to talk to his disciples, now he's warning them against the corrosive power 
of worry. He's warning them against anxious worrying over a lack of abundance. Because just like greed, worry also places inordinate value on material things, on security and wealth and reputation. So greed, on one hand, cannot get enough. Worry, on the other hand, fears it will not have enough. And that is the dynamic that Jesus is speaking to. He says, when you live in either one of these, you are enslaving your heart to something that bends it away from a joy-filled contentment abiding in the presence of the one who loves you and cares for you. One of the people I read this week is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a physician in England and also a famous preacher. And uh, one of the things he says that was insightful to me this week about this is he says, it does not matter very much to Satan what form sin takes as long as he succeeds in his ultimate objective. It is immaterial to him whether you are laying up treasures on earth or worrying about earthly things. All he is concerned about is that your mind should be on them and not on God. Lloyd-Jones then goes on to describe this. He says, Satan will attack you from every direction. He says, you may think you have won the great battle because you have conquered him when he came to your front door uh, to talk to you about laying up treasure for yourself. But before you are aware of it, you will find that he has come in through the back door and is causing you to have anxious concern over things. His one concern is that you should keep your mind on these things instead of centering them upon God and their and, and holding them there. In other words, we have to be very careful against being on guard against the things our culture critiques. I mean, our culture loves to accumulate things. We want wealth, but it's not cool to be seen as greedy, right? Like, so it's fine to critique greed and be aware of it. But uh, the, the, our culturally approved vice is worry. Right? It's almost seen as a virtue. It's like, oh, you're being real if you worry. And anxiety is actually something that saturates our cultural imagination. It, it, it fuels a great deal of our consumption. We buy this in order to secure ourselves, to secure our image, our appearance, our sense of comfort, entitlement. Uh, it fuels and, and completely defines the rhetoric of our p- political realm. Like fear, anxiety, these are the things that saturate our world and it saturates a great deal of the conversation with uh, that I have with people who are both Christians and non-Christians. And so look at what Jesus has to say to his followers who would look at their lack of abundance and be tempted to worry. He says this in verse 22 to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear for life is more than food the body more than clothes. Verse 22 contains a command. Uh, what is the command here? Do not worry, right? In the Greek, it is a present imperative, which means that Jesus is inviting us to live in a constant state apart from worry. Continually live your life without worry or anxiety. So what is Jesus saying we shouldn't worry about? He says, your life, like what you eat, your body, what you wear. Um, that Jesus doesn't mean like it's your, it, uh, you've lost your spiritual bearings if you've changed your outfit a couple times before you come to church. Like that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying you are spiritually bankrupt if you check Yelp before trying a new restaurant. That's not what he's talking about. Right? But he's describing a life that is unduly distracted by the necessities of life. He names these things because they're life basics. We need to eat, we need to wear clothes. Right, kids? 
Got to eat, got to wear clothes, keep them on, right? This is a good thing. Like, okay, so when you, yeah. So anyway, um, food and clothes are the basics. They're the necessities. And then Jesus knows something. He says, look, if you can conquer worry over life's necessities and you have a growing capacity to live in, in every other sphere without worry. And so Jesus is talking here about worry over life's basics, over excessive distraction over food and health and clothes. And Jesus says, these are not the things of life. They're the wrapping paper around life. Sometimes I will get somebody who says to me, I don't worry about money at all. There are two kinds of people who utter this phrase. The first is a 20-year-old who has zero commitments or responsibility. And the second is somebody who has so much money, they don't even know where all of their money is, right? I know where all of my monies are, right? It's like, I need to know where they are. But the, the per, those, are the, those are the two types of people who say, I don't ever worry about money. Right, of course you don't. But Jesus is talking here to the person who, who has to live like a normal person in the world. And he says, I understand your humanity. I understand your feebleness. I understand the weakness of humanity. And therefore, I want to sympathize with you in your human condition. I see your need. And I want to address how you can live in life without worry. Because life, and he says in Matthew, each day brings worry of its own. He gets that days bring worry. So he's teaching us now. How to not live in it. Worry here, again, as I said, it means to be unduly concerned. It means to be anxious. It means to be preoccupied. It means you're thinking about something else before you even get there. Uh, In the passage uh, earlier in Luke, this word is used to describe one sister uh, in comparison to the other. Mary and Martha, one is sitting at Jesus' feet and the other is just scurrying around the kitchen and she's frustrated. Right? And Jesus says, you are worried and distracted about many things. Your sister has chosen the one necessary thing. It's a lack of peace. It's an agitation. And so Jesus says, do not worry about life's necessities. He says, don't get worried when it comes to what you need. How in the world can you say this, Jesus? What? Do you not know about the car repairs I need? Do you not recognize the weight of a mortgage and groceries and medical bills and the payments we owe? And what about the future? What about the company that's downsizing? Those are just the material things. But what about the other things we become anxious over? Well, what will she think if she hears the truth? Or what will my family say when they hear the news? How will I be perceived after this failure? What about the kids? What if they don't start making progress in this one area? Maybe just saying those things has reminded some of you that there are some things that you need to remember to worry about, right? And you're like, oh, shoot, I, what about that, right? I've just worried you, right? The question we ask is, will I have enough? Will our needs be met? Others of you think, I don't worry. I just, I'm a concerned, responsible adult. Right? I'm just, I'm concerned about things. I love what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, um, Someone filled with worry when offered reasons not to worry will invariably respond, Yes, but. Yes, but. He says, uh, This is typical of worry, in that worry always gives the impression that it does not really want to be relieved. And he says this this is true. He says, 
persons, people want to be relieved, but worry never wants to be relieved. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus personifies worry as if it's a power, as if it's almost like a person that can argue with us. Jesus personalizes worry and says it is a thing that will argue with you. It will stack up facts. It will conjure up potential realities far into the future until we succumb to its enslavement, forfeiting our will for peace and instead being carried along by the worries of today and the worries of tomorrow. And so you're not just concerned, you're held captive. You know this to be true because you can't get to sleep at night because your mind's racing about your what-ifs. You don't allow yourself to laugh or enjoy moments because you're so preoccupied with what's coming next. You have that constant nagging at the back of your mind about your resources, your reputation, your relationship. So notice here that Jesus is trying to set us free, not to burden us. Jesus tells us why. He says, guess what? Life isn't all about the necessities. In fact, he says when he is tempted, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. He also says that I am the bread of life. And so what he is saying is he is saying that the author of your life is what life is about, and he is the one who sustains it and cares for it. So if life is more than worry over the necessities, how do we guard our hearts from becoming excessively worried over these things. Three things this morning I want to show you that Jesus gives us to empower us to live a life free of worry. The first is this. Jesus shows us that we need to realize our inability. Um, I was going to say Jesus tells us to realize our impotence, just to kind of like throw another awkward word out there like probe last week, but it it only was worth one laugh. But so anyway, that's kind of lame. So... um, But Jesus does. He calls us to to reconcile our our impotence, our inability, our, our lack of power over much of life. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 24, consider the ravens. They they don't sow or we reap sorry, reap. They don't weep either. That we know of. They they have no storeroom or barn. Right? They're not like the rich man who can he has a barn to begin with and then he wants to build a bit bigger one. Like the, God feeds them, he says. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, can, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why worry about the rest? So, so Jesus uses this observation from nature. He says, let's do the math. Uh, ravens are listed in Leviticus 6 among the unclean animals. And so they, they, they're at the, like the bottom of the Jewish natural world hierarchy. They're like dirty rat birds, okay? Like that's the kind of vibe we have when we talk about ravens, okay? And so when Jesus uses their sustenance as an example of God's commitment to meet our needs... The implication is fairly obvious. If God cares about something as, 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 like that's unclean, that fits at the bottom of the pecking order, then how much more will he concern himself with those who are made in his image, whom he's committed himself to? He says, how much more valuable are you than birds? But once Jesus has established our value, then he throws down and he says, actually, you have very relatively little power in life. What, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, you're very valuable, 
but you're also very insignificant in terms of what you can actually affect in terms of change in the world. That, that by yourself, you, you really you can't even add an hour to your life. So worry about the rest of these things that are outside of your control is completely futile. He's saying, realize where you're impotent. Realize where you lack power. Right? You actually can't alter your world that much. This isn't defeatism. It's realism. He's saying, anxious thoughts will not change anything. Right? You're a little bit powerful, but you're not that powerful. And so he's saying, don't despair, but... Also know that worry won't accomplish anything. It's actually, every time we give ourselves to worry, it is fueling the illusion that we are in control. Are you with me? When we give ourselves to worry, we're actually just putting wood on that fire that says, yeah, I'm actually kind of in control around here. I got this. I can change this. This is the effect of Jesus' words. He's saying, you cannot accomplish Anything by stressing out about it and worrying about it. Um, Because you're very relatively powerless. You you have power to change and bring effect in the world, but it's all relative to a much greater force. It's kind of like swimming in the ocean. We can actually keep ourselves alive in that big thing until it decides that it wants to crush you. Right? Have you experienced this? Have you ever, there, there's, we've had this chance to go to this one beach in Hawaii, and my parents always want to go to it because it's pretty, but I always don't want to go to it because I'm afraid it will kill my kids. And, um, and it is, it's pretty, and there's like a free lunch involved in this beach, but we, it literally scares the snot out of me because it just thrashes you around, and I'm an okay swimmer. And so the reality is, it, Jesus is kind of comparing our ability uh, something to, to swimming in the ocean. It's all relative to the turbulence and force of the waves. And there is a sovereign God who is ultimately powerful. And he's the only one who can actually add an hour to your life. So worry is futile. Here's one of the things that we can do practically to realize our inability, uh, but to put it in the context of a relationship with God. Um, this is this is something you can practically do in the context of prayer. And for me, prayer is, is something that it, I get distracted pretty easy. I pray better when I write. I don't know if that's true for some of you. I, I, I tend to be able to kind of do both, but I really tend to focus best in prayer. And one of the things you can do as you engage God in prayer is you can kind of make a T-chart or, or draw two circles. And I call them your can and can't list. Okay, And as you look at your worries, as you're praying through the things that are bringing anxiety into your life, you can put on one side of the list, these are all the things I actually can do. And here are all the things I actually can't do. And so when it comes to your money and you're stressed about, stressed about your money, what are the things I can do? I can adjust my lifestyle. I can give up some of my entitlement. I can control my attitude. I can budget. Right? But I I, I can't wish uh, financial problems away. I I can't win the Powerball. That couple in Tennessee already got it. So, and I hear that they 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 don't really want to spend it either. So, they we we cannot be assured that God wants us to even have more. Sometimes He wants us to have less so that we can learn to trust Him with it and be faithful with a little. When it comes to our health, this is a place of great anxiety for many of us. What are the things we can do? It's a short list, isn't it? 
Right? It can cut out some foods that are bad for us. It can exercise maybe a little bit more. But we have like virtually no control over what our organs decide to do. All right? And so there's a lot we can't control. What about our relationships? There's places in our lives where we think, man, if I do this, I might, they might not like me. If I say, if I, if I, if I say what, I, what I think and believe here, like, I don't know how that's going to go. We have this saying in our house because uh, we have three kids and inevitably a conflict is brewing around any corner. And uh, so one of the, our sayings is, you're in charge of you, right? Because anytime there's a conflict, what do we want to do? Like, well, I, this person's not and this person should have and you're in charge of you, man. Just figure out your response right now. And so often as we pray through our worries about our relationships, we can go, what can I do? I can offer a gracious response. I can speak in truth. I can speak in love. I can't control what they think of me. I can't control their choices. That's, that's up to them. That's their responsibility. And so when you pray through your cans and your can'ts, what ends up happening is God exposes something. He exposes the place of responsibility he's called you to. And he exposes the place of trust he's called you to. And he says, hey, look, all these things you can't do, you have an option. You can either really stress about them or you can bring them to me and let me be God. And so this is what that exercise accomplishes for us. Keep in mind that it keeps us responsible. Notice the birds in the metaphor, right? He's like, hey, you know, they're not, they're not like not being birds. They're still, they're still flying and getting food. It's just food God provides. And so we do have responsibility in things. But the reality is God does so much more than what is in our control. So Jesus then goes on and he says, it's one thing to recognize your inability. Now he says something very empowering. He says, uh, the second thing you need to do to guard your heart against worry is he says you have to locate your importance. You have to know where the source of your value is. Listen to verse 27. He says, consider the wild flowers, uh, how they grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink and do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them. Friends, we spend a lot of time and energy worrying about things we do not control primarily because we do not believe that the one who is in control truly cares. Oftentimes, we live in a, a functional uh, agnosticism, right? That I, I don't know if, maybe God's there, but I don't know if he cares. I don't know his commitment. How could you know? Well, uh, when we've located our sense of importance, when we've located our sense of value in something that's tenuous, something that is dependable on us, or depends on us, like, hey, I'm a good mother and that's where my value is, or hey, I'm, I'm the responsible one in my family, that's where my value is, or I'm the provider, or I, I perform so I get cared for, I serve God so he'll do things for me. If that's our mindset, if we get our sense of security, our importance, from, from things that demand our importance, then worry is always going to be with us. Jesus, again, uses nature to point out the theologically obvious. He says, wild flowers just grow. He says, they do it without labor. Now, 
Again, this doesn't mean that wildflowers don't do their part. Wildflowers are still photosynthesizing, aren't they? It's not like they gave up their flowerly responsibilities. They're still breathing in all that carbon dioxide and burping out oxygen for us. And they're sucking up water. They're doing the things that flowers are meant to do. But he says they do it without labor, which is a striving, fatigue-inducing type of toil. That's what the word means. It's like this burnout level of work. And so the wealthiest of Israel's kings didn't have the same basic intrinsic beauty as something as common as this flower that is provided for and blessed. Even the grass, something totally transitory, is given the care it needs in God's economy. But humans have this eternal significance. How much more will our needs be met? How much more will we be clothed? This is the reality for us. Jesus' disciples have this at their fingertips, and yet he says, you're of little faith. Here's why he says this. He's, I, th- I had this discovery this week where he says, you're, you're of little faith. And, and this is why he says this. Because in other words, our ability to apprehend the facts of our provision, the facts of God's care and, and, and unconditional faithfulness toward us is actually a matter of faith. Right? That, that in order to grasp our provision, we have to have eyes of faith. That Paul says we walk not by the seeming appearance of things, but by faith. And so where we place our faith and our trust is revealing of where we've located our actual sense of importance and security. And so this is why Jesus says, don't set your hearts on what you eat or drink. Don't aim your affections and your security toward those things. Look at verse 29. Jesus is into repetition, so he's told us not to worry a couple times or be anxious. But now he uses a different word to catch our attention. He says, and do not worry. Now, in the Greek, this is a word... That is different than he initially used. It's a word that's used to describe a ship on the high seas being tossed back and forth. It literally means to be held in suspension. One commentator says this. He says that the implication here is that Jesus' disciples are not to be undecided, vacillating between faith and doubt whether or not God will care for them. It's what James is getting at in James 1 when he says, When you ask God in prayer, believe without doubting. For the one who believes, uh, who, who doesn't uh, believe but doubts is like a double-minded person. So Jesus is saying that's exactly how the pagan world works. They run after all of these things. He's describing the general course of human life. That, that as we worry about thing, our earthly things, we run after them. Now, Who runs for something they already have? Like, no smart person, right? (laughs) We run after things we haven't yet obtained, right? We run after the things that we're, we're trying to grasp for ourselves. We're running after security in things, things to get control or things to get a sense of worth or importance or security. But Jesus is saying, look, you don't have to run after it. Your father already knows what you need. See, when we run after something, it makes it our functional God. It lifts it to a place of ultimate value. We bow down to the things we run after with our time, our energy, our focus, our emotions. It it might be a God to you, Jesus is saying, but it will never be a father for you. It cannot supply what a father does. A father supplies, a good father supplies security and safety and value and affection A father is meant to supply those things. You can have an idol. You can have an idol in your material things, but it will never be a father for you. 
It will just keep on taking from you. But a father says, I give it to you. I love how Jesus says it is our father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus says the most empowering words to the warrior. He says, while the pagan world is running after what they have not yet obtained, you have a father who has already seen your need and moves in to meet it. It is something that is not conditional on you. Your father knows what you need. How gracious is that? Are you with me? Is that exciting or what? So not only does Jesus promise that God knows our need, he calls God our father. This is a relational word, that he's the one who is our source of security and safety and value. He's invested. Think about, I'm a shadow of the father, of of the real father. But I know, like, I I am invested in my kids' well-being. How much more our perfect father Sometimes, though, we have this built-in view of God that's distorted. And we think to ourselves, like, ah, I don't know that he's really good. I don't know that he's really faithful. And, uh, and we, we begin to see him at best as disinterested and at worst as spiteful. But let me tell you, and this is a bad illustration, but I hope it works for you. We became owners of bunnies um, a while ago. They were given to us. It, meant, it was initially meant to be a cute thing for the kids. And we thought we were getting brothers. And Fat Jack turned out to be pregnant Jackie. And uh, that was a bummer. Uh, we didn't know this until I got a picture one day in a meeting. And I think I, it was with Dave. And I was like, oh, crap. I think it was, we have six bunnies. It just This is not good. And um, anyway, so... What ended up happening was, uh, this became really the most ridiculous moment of my marriage so far, is um, uh, uh, the mother bunny didn't know how to be a mom bunny. She, she, it was her first time. She had like been a boy or something, according to us, until this moment. And so she just leaned hard into this uh, girl bunny thing, and she had six bunnies that she didn't know how to take care of. And so what ended up happening was, Laura and I, figured out that we have to actually jumpstart the lactation of this rabbit to keep these other bunnies alive. And so one night we're sitting in our garage and Lauren is like holding, cradling a rabbit while I am putting little tiny bunnies on little bunny nipples, just trying to get some milk going. And I looked at her and I'm like, this is the most ridiculous moment of our marriage. I couldn't believe that we were embracing animal husbandry so hard. And so our bunnies have, uh, have had this sense of us caring for them. And we've met their ev- every need. And we go out to Cornelius to get farm supply stuff for rabbits. It's like this urban farm situation in our garage. But here's what's funny about this. While we have anticipated their every need and met it gently and carefully, when I come into the garage, a lot of the times, my presence or a sound will freak out Mother Bunny. And she just takes off in circles because she is enclosed, right? And she just is running as hard as she can to get away from what she is afraid of. She thinks that as I come in, somehow I am a threat. Even, I, maybe, maybe she just has trauma going back to nursing. I don't know. But she sees me and thinks that she has to run for her security. When all along I've already fenced her in, we have met her every need. Right? We've fenced her in for her own protection and boundaries. We've already planned every 
thing she needs and we meet it. And so we have this ability to disconnect what God has done for us from the present and kind of just start running for our security, trying to manage it and freak out Well, God's saying, I've, I've hemmed you in. I've got you. I know the big picture. I've got your provision right over here. And so Jesus says to us, you have to locate your value if you want to live without worry. But he continues with one more principle here. Jesus says, you know, it's one thing to know your inability. It is another thing to know where your value and your importance comes from. But you also have to pursue what is indestructible. You have to Get a hold of what is indestructible and live for it. Jesus says in verse 31, uh, oh, we're running out of time. Let's move through this here. He says, but seek his kingdom. And these things, what are these things? Our everyday needs, right? These things will be added to you. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out and a treasure in heaven that will never fail for no thief, uh, uh, where no thief will come near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When, you, when we think our life is found in our stuff, we find that our focus ultimately shifts to what we can lose, and therefore worry is the only necessary alternative. But Jesus says, seek first his kingdom. And Two things that the kingdom is. The kingdom is, fundamentally, it is, it is the reign of God. It is the dome, the sphere of God's rule. It is the king domain. And it is an eternal domain. And it is also something that is given. It is not earned. It is something given freely. It is something of grace. And the dynamics of security in our lives work like this. If it depends on me, if I have to run after it, if I have to maintain it and upkeep it, my security that is, then I will constantly be worried. But if it depends on God, if my security ultimately depends on God, if my safety depends on him, if it's a gift he gives and maintains, then worry is eliminated from the logic of that equation. Right? If we can grasp his goodness and his nearness to us personally, that he envelops us, that he's pleased to give us the kingdom. And that's why he says, don't be afraid, little flock. He's wrapping his arms around his disciples and he says, there's no need for fear. There's two things we need to do practically to pursue what's indestructible. The first thing we need to do is we have to receive the gift that cannot be taken away. God's rule in us is a gift. There's an inheritance to that. There's a power and an authority in his kingdom over the spiritual forces of darkness and over worry. And when there's an inheritance, there's also a cost, right? Somebody has earned that inheritance. There's a cost that someone had to pay. And so what we do is we look at our worries and we preach to them. We preach to our what-ifs. And we say, I've been given ultimate provision I'm accepted by my creator. I'm being remade in his image because his spirit's in me. He engulfs me with his love because he's paid the price of death that my sin has cost. Because he has lost everything so that I can gain his place. He's been abandoned so I can be accepted eternally and provided for eternally. And it's something that can't be lost. So the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to preach the gospel to your worries and tell them to repent. The second dynamic that we have to do if we really want to guard our hearts against worries, we have to represent 
what never fades. Uh, when we have a worthy pursuit, a royal pursuit, uh, it, it will eclipse worry. The, the world's solution to worry is either accumulate more or it's apathy. Apathy says, I just need to desire less so I won't be disappointed. Right? But Jesus says, don't desire less, desire more. Just redirect your desire towards my kingdom and representing it in the world, representing it in your neighborhood, representing it at work and in your friendships and in your home. Like, what if God was at work in you, being accurately represented? What would that look like? How would grace touch the broken? How would generosity meet the wanting? It would happen, wouldn't it? And so Jesus says, once you've grasped that you have a Father who meets your need, who radically goes before you to provide for you, you'll be free to give yourself sacrificially. And when you give yourself sacrificially, your eyes go from you and your worries to a bigger mission. And that's what Jesus calls us to. And every time that my wife and I have looked at our situation and we thought, ah, we're tempted to worry, like how is this going to work out? Jesus does a couple things in our lives. And this is, we're noticing something here and how he's forming us. He's never left us wanting and in extremely fun ways he's provided and met needs. And he's gone, hey, you know what? Not only like, am I going to take care of you, he tends to cause our hearts to go, Hey, look at what I've already provided for you. You're blessed. Be grateful. And then he taps us on the shoulder a little bit further and says, How can you represent my reign more through generosity? And one of the things that's fun for us right now, even like after Pastor Dave's message, we're like looking at our budget again, going like, How can we grow in generosity? And, what's, and we have some kind of creative ideas about it. But the thing is, when it comes down to it, there's two prayers I invite you to pray. And I pray them all a lot. When I get to a situation, I go, I don't know how this is going to work. I go, God, I'm doing everything I know how to do. So the rest is your problem. Can you fix it? I get that from the Psalms, right? I'm righteous. Vindicate me. Right? That's what I'm doing here. Like, I, this, is, this is what I know to, what to do. So this is your problem. I'm trusting you to fix it. And then the second prayer is going, God, maybe I don't know everything that I'm doing is right. So would you show me how to be more faithful? Right? And, and that's just that's how we move into generosity. Once you see his care for you, you're freed to do what Jesus says, which is to sell out for the kingdom, give yourselves, and invest in representing his kingdom rule in the world. So where are you today? Maybe you're on the outside of the kingdom, and you're looking in and going, I, I, I need a ruler that's benevolent. I need someone who will care for me. Embrace his rule, because he, there, there's a father who's waiting to for the pleasure of his goodness, he's waiting to give you a kingdom. Maybe you're plagued with anxieties and it's time to preach the gospel to your anxieties, to look at Jesus and eclipse your worry. And others of you are, are here and you don't have worry, but you haven't yet connected the dots between God's good provision for you and his call on your life to be generous and to be invested in representing his rule in the world. And you have an opportunity to redirect treasure today. Because where your treasure is, your heart will be. We're going to move towards communion here as Ali comes and leads us with a couple of songs. And, and, and during this moment, we're going to sing, How Great Is Your Faithfulness. And it's an opportunity as we come to the table, just take the elements and sing, worship the God who's faithful to us. And then go to your seats. And I invite you to just spend some time, just do business with the Lord. We're going to give you some, a little bit of quiet space to just be before the Lord. And during that time, take communion on your own. As you reflect on, God, what is it that you want me to hear today? And what does it look like for me to respond? 
and we're going to continue to worship together after that. So let's let's do that. Would you go to the table um, after I pray, and, and let's let's worship together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision. Would you rule in us? Would you reign in us? Would you eclipse our worries by recognizing once again your goodness and your provision? Would you empower us to be freed of worry so we can be more and more your kingdom people in the world in Jesus' name. Amen.